Support for Industry Focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. You're confident when it comes to your work and life? Rocket Mortgage gives you that same confidence when it comes to refinancing your existing mortgage or buying a home. It lets you understand all the details so you can be confident that you're getting the right mortgage for you. Go to rocketmortgage.com fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Wednesday, January 24th. I'm your host, Christine Hargis, and I'm joined via Skype by healthcare specialist Todd Campbell. Todd, hey, how are you? Hi, Christine. How are you today? I am doing great. Awesome. Well, we have a power-packed show of M&A to talk about, right? Yes. So Monday was extremely exciting in the world of healthcare M&A, mergers and acquisitions. A rumor that we covered in detail on last Wednesday's show of a deal in the making between Celgene and Juno Therapeutics came to fruition on Monday. Celgene will buy Juno for $87 per share in cash for a total of $9 billion. And we're not going to dwell on it because we did talk about it quite a bit on Monday. But the deal has now been approved by both boards. It's expected to close this quarter. Interestingly, there was a 91% premium to the pre-buyout rumor levels of uh, Juno's share price. Todd, were you surprised by the price tag? You know, honestly, I I wasn't. Um, You know, Gilead paid $11.9 billion for Kite, which is a Juno competitor. Um, I thought that it would come in less than that because, you know, obviously Juno is going to be the third to market with a CAR-T for uh, its indication in, in non-Hodgkin lymphoma. So I thought it'd be less than that. And if you look at, you know, it was interesting to me. I, I had three big takeaways I wanted to share with listeners um, thinking about, you know, this deal and, and what it means. And one of the takeaways was that, you know, it's actually a pretty fair price if Celgene is right about its forecast for peak sales on JCAR-17 or Lysocell. Yeah, they're estimating $3 billion in peak sales. And so when you think about general buyout levels, you often see about three times peak sales. And that brings you right to the $9 billion total deal. Yeah. And we've actually seen in biotech deals getting done at much higher levels. You know, I've seen five to seven times. And we're going to talk about one that's even bigger than that a little bit later on in the show. Um, so I think, you know, three, if you include the billion or so up front that Juno paid to get its 9.75% stake um, uh, back in 2015. I think you're talking like 3.3 times sales just on JCAR 17. And, um, you know, that's really interesting because, you know, that's JCAR 17. That wasn't the only drug that they got in this deal. They also get, you know, what I, what I think is, you know, they insulated themselves a little bit against their BB2121 uh, program with Bluebird Bio because Juno was working on a drug for multiple myeloma that works similarly to BB2121. So they kind of protect the moat as far as BB2121 with this deal. And they also, you know, now have a backbone gene therapy you know, re- research uh, program that they can leverage. You know, Juno is doing interesting work on uh, TCR uh, drugs, which is another approach to gene therapy. They were also working with Editus which we've talked about in the show previously, working on CRISPR-Cas9 approaches to treating um, uh, oncology conditions, uh, cancer cancer conditions. So I think that's interesting as well, because theoretically that positions them in a position, you know, 2025 or something to maybe have a gene editing approach that they could roll out. Yep, absolutely. There are a ton more interesting details of this story. So if you missed last week's Wednesday episode of Industry Focus, make sure to go back and check it out. 
So on Monday, not only did we get confirmation about that Celgene Juno deal, but Sanofi also announced an all-cash deal to buy BioVeritive for $11.6 billion or $105 per share. Yeah, and that, that was a little bit more of a pricey deal uh, to say, you know, as far as price uh, divided by revenue uh, versus what we saw with Celgene and Juno, because you know BioVeritive's. Um, hemophilia drugs are only bringing in and, you know, exiting the third quarter, bringing in about $1.1 billion in annualized sales. Yeah, Sanofi really paid up here. That was about a 64% premium on the bid. Uh, shares of Sanofi were down a few percentage points on the news, which isn't really that surprising. You typically will see the buyer lose a little bit of market cap um, when they announce a new deal. But I think I'm kind of with the market. I'm thinking that this seems awfully expensive. For a little bit of background, BioVeritive was a spinoff from Biogen last year. They're a hemophilia specialist, and they IPO'd in the range of $5 billion. So now they're being bought for $11 $1.6 billion. So if you held on to those shares, if you were a Biogen shareholder a year ago, you've done pretty well. You know, Christina, I just don't understand this deal. Like, how, how come this didn't get done a year ago? You're going to tell me that Biogen wasn't out knocking on doors saying, who wants to buy this company? Yeah, right? really. And, and here, so now you've got a year later, what really has changed in the past year that now makes, San, uh, makes the Santa Fe so willing to, to pay twice what theoretically they could have bought it for? Um, pre-spin out. So I, I think that there is reason for some you know, question uh, on how much they're paying for this. But, you know, for Santa Fe, it's important. They need to uh, insulate themselves against the risk of declining demand for Lantus, their multi-billion dollar diabetes drug. And one of the ways that they can do that is by acquiring companies that are generating significant revenue growth. And by all accounts, that's bioverative. I mean, their sales in the third quarter of 2017 were 291 million, and that was up 27% year over year. That's a pretty robust growth for, especially when you consider the fact that the hemophilia market that they participate in is valued at about 10 billion annually. So, you know, that suggests a lot of running room. And it's a pretty competitive market, too. There's Shire in there. There's Bayer in there. But these companies and their hemophilia drugs are not growing nearly as quickly as BioVeritive and its portfolio of hemophilia drugs. Um, I will say, though, I am a little bit wary about the long-term potential of this because of the revolution that we could see in hemophilia due to gene therapies like the ones that we've discussed being developed at Spark Therapeutics and at Biomarin. Yeah, and that was one of the other takeaways I had here. It seems like Santa Fe has done some work and, and is modeling for either a, a longer than expected wait for those gene editing therapies to, to reach the market or a slower uptake. And I, I guess I could make an argument that depending on the pricing that those gene editing um, therapies may command, you could see a situation where you've got extremely severe cases of hemophilia A and B being treated with gene editing and less severe cases being treated with prophylactic, um, such as the drugs um, sold by BioVeritive. So it, it may be one of those situations where they're saying and they're looking at their model and they're saying over the next 10 years, yeah, we may start to get uh, bigger bigger competition from one and done therapies, but it will take a while for those therapies to truly displace uh, these prophylactic treatments. And, you know, by 
I think it's really, a, you can make a good argument that Aloctate and Alprolix, the two drugs that BioVerative um, uh, markets, those are resonating with doctors and patients. I mean, it's re they're reducing patient burden. People are get, having to receive transfusions of the, of the factors that help them coagulate their blood less frequently. Um, and that's a big win for these patients. And one of the things that was interesting to me as I was looking through this deal, Christine, was that, you know, there's still a lot of patients in this market who aren't or haven't switched over from kind of those old um, have to get, you know, take them a lot uh, treatments to these newer, longer lasting treatments. And, you know, that suggests that maybe you could continue to have 20 percent growth for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I, I can see how one could make that argument. I also will add to that argument that you could be looking even farther down the line. Bioverative does have a pipeline outside of hemophilia. They're doing some work in sickle cell disease. They have a gene editing collaboration with Sangamo Therapeutics in beta thalassemia. They also are entering some phase three trials in cold algluntinin disease, which currently has no approved options. So that also potentially could be where they're seeing the long-term value come from. And due to the, the expensive nature of this acquisition, they do need to be thinking long-term because it's going to be a while before they can turn a profit on this. Yeah, ultimately, the long term, whether or not this is a good deal or not, or they overpaid or didn't pay, may, may hinge on those other programs that you just mentioned, because each one of those programs individually could be a nine-figure revenue generator for Sanofi over time. You know, again, like they, they've got to figure out a way to offset headwinds tied to Lantus. And I think this is one of the ways they might be able to do it. Yeah. And they've been looking for a while. You'll recall that they came in second in trying to acquire Actelion and Medivation. Atlantis didn't just lose its patent protection. I believe the patent expired in 2015. And meanwhile, this is the first major acquisition for the company since Genzyme back in 2011. That was a $20 billion acquisition. So they've been on the hunt for a while. It doesn't surprise me to see them making some M&A moves. Well, yeah. And, you know, the other thing that's interesting is the hemophilia market's going to grow. It's not like I mentioned, it's 10 billion or so right now. It's expected to grow about 7% annually from here. So, you know, you're, that's, that's a pretty just sort of a solid natural tailwind uh, for this market. You know, we talked, you mentioned that, you know, there's a lot of competition. There is. You know, if you look at Bexalta, which is uh, now owned by um, Shire, uh, you know, they generate $900 million a quarter from their hemophilia drugs, and they still rely pretty heavily on the short-acting therapies. So, I mean, it's, it's conceivable that you could have sales go from $1.1 today to $2 billion to potentially $3 billion, and then if some of these other programs pay off, then maybe you're getting up towards $4 billion. So, you know, I think the, the devil will be in the details. And you're going to have to keep an eye on things. Um, but it's certainly interesting. It certainly makes you say, okay, you know, I, I want to be keeping an eye on hemophilia companies because it seems like there's uh, there's a lot of interest in paying up based on how much uh, Shire paid and, and now how much Santa Fe paid to, to get into the space. Yep, Absolutely. Folks, if you listened to yesterday's episode of Market Foolery, which is one of our other Motley Fool podcasts, you already know that a handful of fools are going to be in San Francisco in early February for a Motley Fool One event. 
Anyone that's in the area is welcome to come join us on Wednesday, February 7th from 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. at the Golden Gate Tap Room. I'll be there. Chris Hill will be there. Matt Greer, Matt Argersinger, many, many, many more fools. If you're interested but don't trust yourself to remember those details, shoot Chris an email at marketfoolery at fool.com and we would love to see you there. Oh, that sounds like fun. Yeah, it should be a really good time. I, I feel very lucky that I've gotten to hit up the West Coast twice already in 2018. Fantastic. Now you've scouted all the good places to, for, to recommend to everyone. Oh, yeah. Golden Gate Taproom. That was totally my choice. Fantastic. <laughs> Support for Industry Focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Chances are you're confident when it comes to your work, your hobbies, and your life. Rocket Mortgage gives you that same level of confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. With Rocket Mortgage, you can apply simply and understand fully so you can mortgage confidently. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. So we have been doing intern uh, application interviews for the past week or so here at Full HQ. And so I'm going to intro our next segment with a quick story about one of the interviews in which the candidate asked us, how do we avoid clickbait? And I was like, oh, okay, that's a good question because you, you see so much clickbait out there on the web, people posting these outlandish headlines, and then the article totally doesn't back it up. And I, I immediately, when I heard this question, I believe this interview came out, or I had this interview with the candidate yesterday afternoon, I immediately thought of the headlines surrounding Johnson Johnson's earnings, which were just reported, reported, and they had a very shocking headline, which is that Johnson Johnson posted a quarterly loss of $10.7 billion. And this is the healthcare stalwart, Johnson & Johnson, who hasn't posted a loss in any quarter in the 21st century. So that headline right there is just absolutely fascinating, but it's not actually as, as scandalous as it might appear, and we're going to dig into why. Absolutely. We're talking about one-time items, right? And you've got gap reporting, and you've got non-gap accounting. And sometimes it makes sense to look at gap, and sometimes it makes sense to look at non-gap. And this is one of those situations where it makes look, sense to look at non-gap to, to focus on the adjusted results that get rid of these one-time items that aren't likely to happen again. Yeah, so the vast majority of that loss was due to a $13.6 billion provisional charge for taxes on $66 billion of foreign earnings that are going to be brought back to the United States due to the recent tax code overhaul. So if you exclude that tax charge and other one-time one-time items, earnings were a positive $4.78 billion or $1.74.74 per share. So that beat Wall Street expectations. Yeah, they ended up beating on the top and the bottom line, 20.2 billion in sales versus 20.1 estimates, 174 per share versus 172 per share. And I think that, you know, you looked at this and you said, okay, well, the stock's up pre-market and then it opened up and I think it finished down pretty pretty substantially for a company of its size. I think I saw it down at one point close to 4%. Not sure exactly where it closed that day. Are you, Christine? No, I'm not. Yeah, I mean, it, it did took a little bit of a, on the chin, though. And I think that that was because people were digging into the numbers a little bit and slightly disappointed with a couple takeaways on the performance. Yeah, well, OK, so in, in order to evaluate Johnson & Johnson's performance in any given quarter, you have the three main business segments to think about. The pharmaceutical segment, which is almost always the most important one to evaluate. Then there's also the consumer goods segment and the medical device segment. 
So the pharma segment was up 17% year over year to 9.68 billion. That was mostly led by a 40% increase in sales of cancer drugs like Darzalex and Zytiga and Imbruvica. But there are a lot of moving parts here. And there are also plenty of very important drugs that lost uh, volume and sales. Remicade, for example, that's one we've been keeping our eye on forever. It's an autoimmune blockbuster. It fell about 10% because of biosimilar competition. We knew this was coming, and management actually says that that's less of a decrease than they're expecting, but it'll probably accelerate in 2018. Um, another one, uh, Ivankana in diabetes fell 29%, which that one was pretty surprising to me, at least, due to competition from Jardians. There's so much competition now, though, in this at diabetes space for Invokana. I mean, they in in December, another yet another drug that works the same way got approved. Um, so there's just a very crowded market. So it's I think the people looked at Invokana and they said, oh, my God, down 29 percent. That's more than I was thinking it would be. They looked at the fact that Remicade sales uh, sagged 10 more than 10 percent year over year. You mentioned Imbravica. Yes, sales grew pretty substantially, but. It actually, if you look at what Wall Street was looking for, it actually came in below those ex- estimates. Um, Darslex is probably the, the best bright spot among the whole bunch with sales up 82% uh, at 371 million. Analysts only were expecting about 347. But the other thing that yeah, you know, we talk about, you mentioned the clickbaity kind of headline stuff. There's so much stuff to dig into when it comes to Johnson & Johnson. And part of the problem for investors looking at just the headline numbers is that you have to remember that they also did a massive acquisition of Actillion. And that has inflated what they're reporting as far as growth. I mean, you look at 15% operational growth from pharmaceuticals. Well, get rid of all of the uh, benefit uh, from Actillion and currency and stuff. And, you know, 4.2% growth overall in the quarter across all of its businesses. So you're talking about low single digits rather than if you just looked at the headline number, uh, something like 11.5% growth. Yep, absolutely. And speaking of low single digits, the consumer health segment was only up about 3.1%. And the medical device segment, just to round us out with the third and final segment, was up 11.5%. They also provided a 2018 outlook, and they are expecting revenue of $80.6 billion to $81.4 billion. So that would be operational growth of about 4% or organic growth of about 25 to 3.5%. Yeah, and I think that was kind of disappointing to folks, too, because it marks a slowdown in organic growth from where we saw in 2017. And, um, you know, I mean, it's really not that much better than what inflation theoretically could be. And if you look at Johnson Johnson stock uh, leading up into this, it was it was trading pretty richly compared to itself over time. I mean, if you look at historically the P.E. range for that company, uh, it was up at the upper band of that. So you were kind of pricing the shares for perfection. And instead you got, OK, you know, solid results with some question marks. And I don't think that was the, the perfect recipe for this thing to continue to put in new highs, at least on day one. One of the big question marks moving forward, and this was extremely uh, uh, evidenced in the Q&A section of the earnings call, is what are they going to do with this newfound cash? They have about $12 billion that's immediately accessible. 
from the repatriation. And so the way that they answered this question was to reiterate that their strategy is pretty much the same. Their number one priority is going to be research and development. After that, it's going to be to raise the dividend like they've been doing for so many years. That's what makes them a a dividend aristocrat and a very attractive stock for so many people. After that, then they'll look at M&A, but only the right company at the right price. And then maybe after that, some share repurchases. But that's clearly way down the road. Number one for them is absolutely going to be more research and development, in particular in the United States. For a while now, they've been borrowing money to fund their R&D efforts in the U.S. because it was cheaper to do that than to pay tax on bringing the cash back. But now they'll be able to both fund those operations better and hopefully also pay some of that debt down. Yeah, they actually started to spend, if you look at their costs last quarter, they actually started to spend a little bit more than they normally do in R&D already. Um, you know, there, there, there is, though, again, you look at it and you say, okay, well, that's exciting that they're going to recommit that money uh, to R&D. But, you know, as we know from, you know, being healthcare focused on this show, um, you know, R&D investment doesn't necessarily translate into uh, into growth anytime soon. <laughs> you know, a lot of these drugs and R&D programs end up failing or they end up, you know, missing the mark as far as what you might hope that they might make deliver. The thing that I thought was interesting, too, is if you if you go into the Q&A section of their uh, transcript from the from their fourth quarter conference call, you kind of get the impression that, you know, yeah, dividend hikes are on the table. But they also seem pretty confident that, you know, with a 50 percent return rate is pretty solid um, as far as the dividend goes. So maybe, you know, the dividend increase that people were hoping for will be a little bit smaller than maybe you know, when it finally happens, um, I suppose maybe that could be weighing down a little bit of enthusiasm, too. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, th- I think it's their job in these answers to temper expectations. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, it, it, whenever you have a, a situation, you don't want to be involved in biotech companies that pump and dump. <laughs> you want to have them over prom- uh, under promise and over deliver. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's what you get with a stalwart like Johnson & Johnson. I would agree with that. And, you know, the, the I think that the big question marks, the things to watch in 2018 as we go forward is what kind of things are getting closer to the market in the pipeline? Um, what happens with drugs like Zetiga, which is their leading prostate cancer drug? Uh, sales were up significantly last quarter, and I think they're clocking in around a $2.8 billion run rate. But there's some patent concerns there. And, you know, the, the company addressed it on the conference call and they said, OK, yeah, you know, uh, um, our patent that, uh, for uh, um, administration use um, was invalidated, but we're appealing it. And if we win our appeal, that's going to protect Zytiga for through 2027. But if they lose that appeal, then theoretically Zytiga could start facing off against competition by the end of 2018. So. You know, then you end up with Remicade already facing off against biosimilars and Zytiga potentially facing off against generics in 2019. So what's going to offset that, especially when you have a very low single digit organic growth um, modeled? Well, could be an acquisition. We don't know. But I mean, really, with Johnson & Johnson, there's so much going on with that company that there will always be high points and low points. You know, it's the total opposite from a single drug clinical stage biotech where you know exactly the single catalyst that you're supposed to monitor. With J&J, the way that I see it is this company has, it has tailwinds at its back. It has a smart management team. It has ridiculous 
ridiculous flexibility on its balance sheet, especially now that it has more access to its cash. Even with a couple of ups and downs and bumps in the road, I do see a very bright long-term future for Johnson & Johnson. It's hard to imagine that this company isn't going to remain a core holding for most income investors in most large cap uh, mutual funds for the for, for for decades. Yeah, if you don't think you're a J&J shareholder, you probably are. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right, that is all we have for you guys this week. As usual, you can hit us up on Twitter at MF Industry Focus or in the Motley Fool Podcast Facebook group or via email at industryfocus at fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Todd Campbell, I'm Christine Hargis. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! Fool on!